Eric Estep here. One of my favorite parts of being a NASCAR fan is collecting diecasts. It's how I got my start on YouTube, actually. To me, a room is not complete until it features shelves of NASCAR diecast cars. It's as good a time as ever to continue your collection or begin an all-new one by pre-ordering your favorite driver's 2022 next-gen diecast at LionelRacing.com or at any authorized Lionel retailer. Lionel is the official diecast of NASCAR, and don't miss Lionel Racing's NASCAR Authentics diecasts at a Walmart or Target near you. Not only is Lionel the official diecast of NASCAR, but they're also official supporters of the Out of the Groove Podcast Network. So what are you waiting for? Head to LionelRacing.com to order your favorite driver's 2022 diecast. Hey, Ben, it's Aaron. Hey, Aaron, it's Ben. So, Ben, how long have you been following NASCAR? A lifetime. It's the same for me. How funny and how fitting, then, that we would host A Lifetime in NASCAR, getting ready for Episode 3 of the A Lifetime in NASCAR podcast. I'm Aaron Burns. Speaking with me is my co-host, Ben White, and we're going to talk about contemporary NASCAR topics, going to discuss those with a historic slant, highlighting NASCAR's illustrious history with analysis and anecdotes from Ben and myself. You're going to hear about famous races, moments, drivers, cars. We're going to highlight them in every one-hour episode. You'll learn about where the sport has been, where it will go, and the inside scoop on some of the craziest stories you'll ever hear. So, Ben, to kick things off, this is episode number three. It couldn't be more appropriate for us to discuss the history of the number three car, its most notable drivers. I will defer to you at the start. Uh, what are some things and some personality that you remember who drove that car? I think we're going to talk about the same guy for a little bit. I think we're going to, Aaron. And, of course, it was Dale Earnhardt who really put the number three on the map. But you got to go a little bit further back, of course, with Junior Johnson, who drove the car. And a lot of people don't realize that Junior Johnson, the team owner, was also Junior Johnson, the driver. And he did win some races with the number three. But, you know, going way, way back, you might ask the question, when was the number three first used in NASCAR? And I have an answer to that. There was a driver named Bill Snowden who first drove the number three in a Nash. That's a car type, by the way, at Okanochee NC Speedway on August 7th, 1949. The first time that the number three went to Victory Lane, a driver by the name of Dick Rathman won a race in a Hudson Hornet at Oakland, California at the Oakland Stadium, March 28th, 1954, and he won a whopping $1,000. So there you go. (laughs) So what you're saying is the first two winners and the first two cars that won, none of them are around anymore. No, a long, long time ago. And, uh, yeah, actually the Bill Snowden one, I don't don't really think he was just the first to use it, but the first person to drive and win in the number three was Dick Rathman. But the car number goes way back. And if you look at the statistics, the NASCAR record book, of course, it's a who's who type of list of people who have won in the number three. Of course, you've got, you know, David Pearson. I mentioned Junior Johnson, Buddy Baker. Bobby Isaac, uh, you know, Charlie Glotzbach won a race there, uh, Paul Goldsmith, uh, Dick, uh, and again, Dick Rathman actually won three races in the number three. Uh, Ricky Rudd actually won the first race for Richard Childress Racing using the number three, and that was that came in 1983. That's right. 
And uh, so, I mean, it, there's been a lot of drivers who've driven number three, but the one who's, of course, been the most successful in the number three was Dale Earnhardt, and he won 67 of his 76 career victories driving the car number three. That's pretty impressive. And since then, Austin Dillon has grabbed a couple of victories. I've actually, I, I, we, I think we were both at Austin's first win mm-hmm. in uh, 2017, and then he's won a, a couple uh, since then. So th- that car has an incredibly impressive history. Uh, to touch on Dale Earnhardt, you know, certainly the the man when people think of the number three, he's synonymous not just with that car number, but for a lot of people, he's synonymous with NASCAR as a sport. He he is, you know, the larger than life character that many you know have always said and when they think of Dale Earnhardt I would imagine very few people would think of Dale Earnhardt driving the number 15 Ford for for Bud Moore or driving the number two for Rod Osterlund they think of Dale Earnhardt driving that black number three or if you're really old school driving that gorgeous blue and yellow number three Monte Carlo sponsored by Wrangler which for my vote is the coolest race car ever that is my favorite car if I could drive any race car put me in that 1987 Monte Carlo mm-hmm. I don't know how well I would do but uh it would be a whole lot of fun um and you know discussing the the guys who, who've driven the three car certainly Dale had so much success in it he won six of his seven championships in that car. Um, many, many of Dale's greatest moments uh, come in the, the three car. For me, I have one really special Dale Earnhardt moment. I never got to meet the man. I've met Dale Jr. many times. I've met Carrie. I've met Kelly. I've met Jeffrey. They are all phenomenal people. Dale Jr. is one of the best people that I've ever you know, had the chance to interview or, or um or collaborate with in the sport and so uh you know it's always wonderful to hear from him he has a tremendous uh, passion for history just like you and i so it's mm-hmm. very easy to relate to him and you know for, for me as a kid growing up i think i touched on this in episode one that you know my dad was a long was a dale Earnhardt fan um when dale raced and so i became a dale jr fan because you know i thought it would be so cool for the, the father to pull for the father and the son to pull for the son um so i've always looked up to dale jr he's a phenomenal person he also won two xfinity championships in the three car so mm-hmm. you know you're opening up a whole other can of worms when you bring it up what has happened in other divisions because you've got dale jr winning championships in the three car uh steve park had a lot of success in it among many other people and then of course mike skinner uh, won championships in it in the truck series so there's been a ton of success but when i think of a successful race in the three car for me it's the 1993 all-star race at charlotte it's the only time I saw Dale Earnhardt win a race. It's very, a special moment for me because I was at that race with my mom and dad. And it was the second race I'd ever attended. I was five years old. And uh, my dad, at his, his uh, workplace, they had a race pool. And you would draw positions based on where guys qualified. And he drew Dale Earnhardt for the Winston, which was, you know, I mean, like, for him, I can only imagine how cool that is because it's, your, you know, it's his favorite driver. And it's the race that we're going to. And it's at Dale's home track. It's at my home track. So, you know, we're excited about it. And, hey, I mean, you can win some money. You can't turn that down, right? And then they have this exciting finish. Dale jumped the start. Um, <laughs> they didn't They didn't put him at the rear, thank God. And uh, then on the second one, uh, Dale drives away from Mark Martin. And I vividly remember um, 
you know, five-year-old me with a blonde mullet in row 10 in the grandstands yelling, come on, Earnhardt, come on, Earnhardt. And, uh, and it sounded even more redneck than that, I'm sure. Um, <laughs> and, you know, my dad and my dad would, you know, probably says like, yeah, it was the day we pulled him through and he won the race. So we won some money, you know, so I was, I was excited for my dad for him winning the race pool because we weren't very lucky with that usually but also as a you know personally for me as a fan that was a really special experience to share with your dad even as a five-year-old I was a couple months from starting school but I, I remember that moment vividly I don't remember much of that day I just remember um that moment the last lap Earnhardt pulling away from Mark Martin and winning the race it wound up being Dale's final all-star win um Probably not as memorable a one as the one he got in 1987, the pass in the grass. But for me, the most special Dale Earnhardt win was the only one I got to see in person. So for you, Ben, what are a couple special Dale Earnhardt memories you have? Well, the one that comes to mind as far as my favorite Dale Earnhardt race, of course, 1998, the Daytona 500 was great. And it was closing the door on on finally getting that win after 20 years of trying in the Daytona 500. But the one that really stands out was October of 2000 at Talladega when he get, went from 18th to 1st in five laps and I, I was, I'm telling you I swear I saw it with my own eyes and, and everyone in the press box was standing up looking at this unfold because I mean you think about Talladega you're three wide and it's really hard to pass and so many things can happen but he just threaded that needle lap after lap and yep. at the end of the thing he was out front Kenny Wallace was running second and you thought how in the world did he do that and it was miraculous it was almost he had angels or something arriving with him because it was so phenomenal to see him do it but that's that was the way how smooth he really was especially on the super speedways and I remember remember talking about Dale I remember at Martinsville one year I believe 97 maybe we were there and of course he was out front and we were all marveling at the fact now this is a short track but he was uh, we were marveling at the fact that we're looking down through the inside or the passenger side window and he's got his armor on the spider bar and he's driving with his left hand and he did that for 250 or 300 laps and just like he was on a Sunday drive and that's what we asked him in the press box so what's the deal about the arm on the spider bar it was a Sunday drive and that's how well he he mastered the short tracks but he always also was so good on the super speedways but I, I do want to share this with you real quick uh, Aaron and it's a story that's coming out in Pole Position Magazine, and I want all of our listeners to 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 get Pole Position Magazine. It's an awesome magazine that we also help to produce. That's uh, PolePositionMag.com, by the way, for everybody listening. Yeah, yeah, and and there's a story that's coming up in there that I've had the honor to work on, and you know, people asked have asked me the question, how did the number three become a black number three? And I was like, well, you know what? I don't know, but I'm going to get the answer. So a couple of years ago, I went to Richard Childress and I asked him, how did you come up with, with the black scheme? And so he said, well, I'll tell you the honest truth. So when Wrangler went away uh, and we need, we went to the Goodwrench uh, in paint scheme in 1988, we had to come up with something that would really pop on the racetrack. So there were several uh, paint schemes that they tried. They tried uh, uh, getting, I get this, they tried a blue number three good ranch car because you know the GM parts logo there was was blue and they tried that that's right didn't didn't really like it too much tried some white and blue 
didn't really do what they wanted, tried some red, black, and silver in a way different uh, paint scheme, not too crazy about it. And they're all sitting around and, you know, looking at charts and looking at drawings and looking at things. What are we going to do? And this is a true story. One of the Goodrich executives, out of frustration, basically said, oh, heck, why don't you just paint the thing black? And he was he was being facetious at the time, but it, it, they're like, hmm. Why not? You know, so they tried a black, uh, you know, paint scheme, and that's when they had the silver numbers instead of the white numbers the first year. And I think yeah. the next year they changed them to white. Wasn't it but, chrome you know, for 88? Uh, yeah, it was kind of a silverish chrome yeah. color. And so, you know, you think, well, wow, these, they had to put a lot of energy and a lot of thought and all these things. No, not really. It's just one of those frustrating moments where someone would throw up their hands and say, well, what the heck? Just paint the thing black. What we tried everything else. And that's a true story. And there's a little piece coming up about that in the magazine. It's to be fun to read, but yeah, it's that, that's how a lot of these things come together is by happenstance or fate or whatever you want to call it. And it became one of the most uh, iconic paint schemes in NASCAR history. Yeah. I think, it's it's definitely had an indelible impact on people and um from what i see on the the pole position the nascar pole position twitter account there are a lot of people who were born after dale's untimely passing who still hold him in a very high regard and speak of him with reverence because they recognize his greatness not unlike if you were a formula one fan and ayrton senna it's a lot of comparisons can be made there and we could probably discuss that for a little while. I'm a big formula mm. one fan too, but to speak of Dale's paint scheme for just a second, I've seen all those renderings. Uh, the, the late great Sam Bass, I have to give Sam a shout out. Sam was NASCAR's first officially licensed artist. We lost Sam a couple of years ago after a long battle with cancer, I believe it was. And, um, Sam was a good friend of mine when I worked at the speedway. Um, and I, I collaborated with him on some projects. And I so I had heard and found out that he was the one who designed these paint schemes for Dale. And I, I've seen all these renderings. And, oh, my gosh, they look so different than than the finished product. I mean, there were, there were really cool paint schemes. One was like, it was kind of like the Wrangler scheme. So envision the yellow and blue Wrangler car. If you're listening, pull that car up if you don't immediately recognize it. There's chances are you probably do. But so imagine... Where the yellow was, was silver. And where the blue was on the Wrangler car, it was black. And then the number was a bright red. So, which, honestly, that silver and red combination, that would that would end up coming in a, in a different manner a little bit, seven years later for the Winston in 95, which kind of ushered in the era of new paint schemes. But they came close to actually using that one. That was one of the choices. But whoever made that call at Goodwrench... <laughs> RC, Dale, whoever, they made the right decision because mm -hmm. that car was bad to the bone. And I think everybody in the field hated seeing it in the rearview mirror. But, you know, for better or worse, most of the time it wasn't in their rearview mirror. It was in front of them. And yeah. that, that's where I think all of us remember that car being out front. Yeah, it's true. And I, I remember Bobby Allison telling me, I, I was asking him about the Intimidator and how it was to race against Dale and stuff. He said, well, be honest with you, there were some drivers that would see that black number three come up in the mirror and pretty much spin out on their own. <laughs> yeah, I mean, he was just intimidated. So it's like, okay, they had to brace themselves and had to turn left and had to get ready for him to come. And if they'd have just calmed down and realized, you know, that he's coming up on them and just racing, but they, some of the guys would actually spin out, you know, thinking, 
and here he comes. And there was something so, I, I'm sorry to use the word again, intimidating about that black paint scheme yeah. that you just, you know, like that's, that suited him though. That it was one of those fake situations, I think, because it just suited his personality. It suited his driving style. And, you know, and I'll say this too, Aaron, there's times that you see some a rendering on paper and then you think that is the coolest thing I've ever seen. And then you put it out there on a racetrack and it just doesn't pop. It just doesn't do what you want it to do. Absolutely. And of course the, yeah. And the idea is that if you're going to put a sponsor's name on a race car, obviously you want it to pop. And so people can see it from the stands and from television. And you just think that's go, that's a winner. That's going to be great. Then you see it on the track and it just doesn't work. So that's kind of where the black came from. Speaking of black cars, uh, that point that you made is very valid. I've actually experienced it from an opposite end with Dale Earnhardt Jr. So in 2010, they had he was sponsored by Amp Energy Juice, and they did this deal where they came up with the legend of Hallowdega for, for the Talladega Fall Race, which uh, I went to that weekend. I lived in Alabama at the time, so it was easy for me to go. Um, but they did the rendering for this car, and it came out on the Internet, and it was black in the front and it was kind of like beigeish yellow in the back it, it looked like kind of like a rotten banana color like it was not it did not look very good and i remember saying like that is the ugliest paint scheme i've ever seen in my life and then i saw the car on track and it was gorgeous it had this mm-hmm. bright striking vibrant neon yellow the splitter on the front was neon yellow it transitioned from black to neon yellow. It was gorgeous. It's one of my favorite paint schemes I've ever seen. But you are right, to your point. When you see the rendering, sometimes it doesn't do justice to what it could be. It could be better. It could be worse. Speaking of things that started out really good and got better, though, and speaking of people who accomplished something Dale Earnhardt accomplished, uh, let's transition and discuss a little bit about drivers who won a race as a rookie. Dale Earnhardt did that. He's one of the most famous ones to do it. He wasn't driving the number three car at the time. He was driving the number two car. It happened at Bristol, uh, then Bristol International Raceway, I think was the name of it, in mm-hmm. 1979 when he won the volunteer 500 i think i'm going on rote memorization so if somebody looks it up i may be right i may be wrong i've read a lot of dale Earnhardt books and i feel fairly confident in that but i know he did win april of 79 was his first win of 76 um it was his only win as a rookie but at that time ben this is just before you started covering the sport full time but it was almost unheard of for a rookie to win first of all it was pretty rare if Richard Petty, Daryl Waltrip, Buddy Baker, or Bobby Allison didn't win the race. I'll throw Benny Parsons in there too. But this guy, Earnhardt, comes out as a rookie driving Rod Osterlund's car. He had let Dave Marcus go. Some people were questioning that. Should you really let this accomplished guy who can wheel it, Dave Marcus, go for this rookie? Um, and Dave Marcus is a, a, a very good driver. But those concerns kind of ended up like if you're a basketball fan – well, gee, should we really trade Vladdy Divots for Kobe Bryant? I mean, mm. Kobe Bryant's unproven. How good can he be? Well, it was like, how good can this Earnhardt kid be? Yeah, his dad raced. He's raced most down dirt. How good can he be? Well, they found out very quickly, in just a couple months into Dale's rookie season, he won a race. But there's a lot of guys, when you look back through history, who won a race as rookies. It just so happened that Dale kind of ushered that in, that era in, where younger drivers, you know, they typically had to work very hard to get to the top. So 
in a lot of cases, a rookie wasn't driving very good equipment, so it was rare for them to even have a chance to win a race. And then they had to have the reliability, they had to have the driving skill. Dale Earnhardt had that. Davey Allison had that. Davey won a couple of races. Tony Stewart won some races. Who were some rookies who did really well that stand out to you? Well, the ones that really stand out, and, and I was surprised. I went back and looked at this. There's actually 21 drivers who won in their rookie season in the modern era from, from 1974, starting with Earl Ross, who was a Canadian driver that drove for Junior Johnson. He won one race, and it was at Martinsville. And you go all the way up to Cole Custer, who won last year at Kentucky. But That's right. Yeah, but 21 drivers did that. And, you know, one thing I want to add to what you said about Bristol – Dale Earnhardt's car was the the blue and yellow, but it had number twos on it, and it had no sponsorship whatsoever, and other than just being fielded out of Osterlund's pocket. But you're right, the car was kind of off in the corner on jack stands, tires off, working on it. But he had people like Jake Elder, uh, you know, working on the car, which is a great crew chief uh, who helped Daryl Walter and several others, and also started his career at home and Moody. So he had a little bit of ammo in the gun there, but the car was unsponsored, and but he ended up winning. But yeah, going back to the the list of drivers you got. Um, you know, Dale Earnhardt, as you said, 79. Ron Burchard pulled off a great win in 81 when he snookered Terry Labonte and Daryl Waltrip coming to the flag, and they re- didn't realize he was on the lead lap, and he beat them by a bumper and a three-wide finish in 1981. So that was also a great one. And he also drove a blue and yellow car he did. in that race, in the yeah, 47 sure car. Did. The race, I think it was Race Hill Farms, 47 right, uh, car. Yep, and a guy named a team owner was a guy named Jack Beebe, who later sold his team to Kel Yarborough a few years later. But Morgan Shepard also won at Martinsville, and then you had Davy Allison winning in '87 at Talladega, which that was a, a great hometown uh, type finish, very mm-hmm. popular finish. You had Tony Stewart in '99 winning for JGR, uh, Joe Gibbs Racing. Uh, Denny Hamlin wins in 2006 at Pocono for JGR. Juan Montoya uh, in 2007. Um, Logano in 2009. Brad Keselowski in 2009. So, and of course, who can forget the uh, Trevor Bain Daytona 500 big surprise 2011 for the Wood Brothers. So, yeah, and, and uh, Chris Busher at Pocono, and then you get to Custer. So there's a lot of guys who have come out of the box winning a race, but but you're right. Back to your point, back to Dale Earnhardt. Yeah, he had a decent car that day, but it was in an era where the toughest of the toughest were going to come out at the top at the end of five laps, uh, 500 laps, I mean, and you just didn't expect a rookie driver to win, but it showed you the talent Dale Earnhardt had, and he was pretty rough around the edges until he had to, you know, hone his skill among those types of drivers. But yeah, it's it's amazing how many of these guys have won in their rookie year and went on to do incredible things in their careers. Absolutely, and a couple that come to mind for me to add to yours are uh, Dale Earnhardt Jr. and Matt Kenseth in 2000 followed Tony Stewart's lead. Dale Jr. won two races in the first half of the season, and he won the All-Star race. I mean, I'm not sure there's been a driver come out of the gate with as much hype as Dale Jr. had and instantly live up to that hype. I mean, there was a point, I think, in the early part of 2000 where people were like, this guy's already a top five or top ten driver. I mean, he's he won at Texas. He wins at Richmond. He wins the All-Star race. 
I mean, that that's an incredible start. Like to think that by the time you get to June of Dale Jr.'s rookie year, in this team that's three years old, Dale Earnhardt Incorporated, it's his third full season as a race team in the Cup Series, never won a race, and Dale Jr. jumps in that car and just flat out blew him away at Texas. And mm-hmm. You know, drove to the victory at Richmond, and then that incredible drive to win the Winston, passing Dale Jarrett on the outside on the penultimate lap, and, and then, you know, that was the May, that was the month of rookies for for NASCAR in 2000. Honestly, Ben, because then it, you know you got Dale Jr. winning at Richmond. Dale Jr. wins the All-Star race. Dale Jr. dominated the 600 the next week. And another rookie, Matt Kenseth, won it. And Matt Kenseth is still the most recent rookie to win the 600. It's been 20 years since then. Nobody's done it, uh, which which speaks to the difficulty of winning a race as a rookie. Those guys were able to do it. Kevin Harvick, a year later, winning that emotional race just a few weeks after Dale's untimely passing. Uh, Kevin just beats Jeff Gordon to the finish line by, God, what was the length of a hot dog? I mean, it was that Something close at the finish very line. Very close, yeah. Yeah, and close. so you, you've got that emotional win. The thing that sticks in my mind about that is Chocolate Myers from Dale's crew, the Goodrich crew, that stuck with Harvick, him just crying openly after that race is over it was such a cathartic victory it was a year of cathartic victories um with steve park winning at rockingham the the week after dale died kevin harvick winning at atlanta a couple weeks later they go back to daytona dale earnhardt jr in his second year wins his first race at daytona so there were a lot of, of of big wins right after Dale's passing, but that's also kind of when you had that biggest cluster of guys who were rookies coming in and winning races. So 99, you had Tony Stewart. 2000, Dale Jr., Matt Kenseth. 2001, Kevin Harvick. Kurt Busch comes in and lights it on fire pretty soon after that. And then Ryan Newman, the rookie of the year in 2002. Ryan Newman had a phenomenal rookie season of winning races. He won the All-Star race as well. He's the, he's the most recent rookie to win that race. And then there's that guy, Jimmy Johnson, too. Probably shouldn't mm-hmm. forget about him. Jimmy Johnson. Yeah. <laughs> Jimmy Johnson. <Okay>. Okay, so <laughs> I vividly remember getting a copy of TV Guide. I don't even know if they still make TV Guide. I got a copy of TV Guide. It was a NASCAR preview for 2002. They ranked all the drivers. So I got it, and I opened it up. I think Kevin Harvick was on the cover. And the first thing I'm like, all right, where they rank Dale Jr.? So I'm reading the top 20, you know, and then there's like, they ranked the top 20 or the top 25. And then there was like, you know, five others to watch that didn't crack their top 25. And one was that new guy, Hendrick Johnson, you know, and I didn't know much about him. He was that guy who had that bad record at Watkins Glen. And Mm -hmm. they didn't rank him in the top 25. I mean, nobody expected somebody with a... I'm not going to say so-so. He had a pretty good Xfinity resume, but he was driving for Herzog Motorsports, so it wasn't like he was with a super team. And he comes in, wins the pole for the Daytona 500, and you know now we're we're almost 19 years later, and Jimmy's getting ready to make his IndyCar debut after winning seven Cup championships. All that started with his immediate success as a rookie coming in and winning at Auto Club Speedway in uh, in the spring of 2002, and that really catapulted him five championships in a row, 06 to 2010. The whole time I was in college, Jimmy Johnson was the only champion. So, so I watched, I witnessed part of five seasons when I was in college, although I was only in college for four years. I didn't take the victory lap. But every year that I was in college, for any point, Jimmy Johnson was the NASCAR Cup Series champion. It was kind of crazy. And then he goes out and wins two more and has solidified himself in that pantheon with Dale Earnhardt and Richard Petty. So then there's been so many impressive rookies to win. 
I think then when you look at the more recent winners, Cole Custer, you brought up, that was a surprise mm-hmm. under different circumstances. When you look at the guys who are coming up in the, in this crop of drivers who now we look at as, all right, they're the, the present and the future. Chase Elliott, Kyle Larson, his teammate at Hendrick, Eric Jones. If you would have said, all right, those three in 2016 all are in very good rides, capable of winning races and maybe championships. And of that crop, the first one to win was Chris Busher. Nobody expected that. It was a, you know, it was fog delayed race, but still pretty crazy. There's been so many rookies to win. Um, I, I do think that, in my opinion, one of the most notable, because it was so rare at the time, was Dale Earnhardt. And Dale Earnhardt, having had so much success as a rookie, as a veteran, every time he's strapped in the race car, Dale Earnhardt is driver of the week for episode three of A Lifetime in NASCAR. We could probably spend a lifetime, Ben, talking about yeah. all of Dale Earnhardt's accomplishments. We, we could. But sure I, could. I know you've got you've got one that's really special to you. Tell me about like your favorite encounter with Dale Earnhardt or your favorite memory with Dale. Oh, well, I got to go back to one, and we may have already discussed this before, but just something that really meant a lot to me, and it sort of happened, you know, just out of the blue, and it was the second year we went to Japan. We went to Suzuki and Motegi those two years. We went three years, and one was an oval, and Motegi was an oval, and the other track was a road course, but the second, I didn't go the first year, but I went the second and third years, and I was just sitting in a, a tent that, that they had set up for American food. If you want to go in for bacon and eggs and grits and fruit, whatever juice you could go in there. Or if you wanted the traditional Japanese uh, type meal, you could go to this other place. So I'm sitting there minding my own business. What did you get, you by know? the way? Were you eating American food or Japanese food? Oh, yeah, food? I was doing American, yeah. Oh, you should have branched <laughs> out, man. <laughs> yeah, and I know some of the race teams, they, they – they took like cases and cases and cases of like beanie weenies and <laughs> you know, sausages Jeez. and crackers. It's not and a different planet. Yeah, no, but they, you know, these are racers. They didn't know what to expect. Yeah. So anyway, they take all that stuff, but yeah, I'm sitting there. I had the traditional bacon and eggs and somebody comes up behind me and just kicks the snot out of my chair. And I look around and I thought, well, who in the world? And it was Earnhardt. He said, what are you doing? So what do you think I'm doing? I'm eating my eggs. He said, can I sit down with you? I said, absolutely. So he sat down with me and that was the most relaxed I had ever known Dale Earnhardt to be because, and he was just having fun. There were no points on the line. He was over there and he said, you know what the coolest thing is over here? He said, I don't mean this in a bad way, but it's really cool. I said, what's that? He said, no one knows me. And I could actually come over here and just have fun and just, you know, visit with the fans. And there's no points on the line. This is the coolest place in the world. And so we just sat and talked about Canapolis and talked about this and that. And I said, well, listen, I've enjoyed having breakfast with you. I would love to. I need to talk to you about something else I'm working on. He said, well, what are you doing right now? I said, well, nothing except taking my tray over here to put it away he said well come on let's i've got this little bungalow thing i'm supposed to stay in when i'm not outside so let's just come with me he was an entirely different person i'm telling you straight up here and he was not he didn't act like the normal typical dale earnhardt because you know people would pull at him all the time at a race oh definitely ask our points race and so we go to this little bungalow and it's probably you know i call it that it's probably a i don't know a a 20 by 30 it's just a small building it's not very big at all and every driver and team had one so we go in there 
and he has a stack of cards he's signing and i just remember how we were watching these three japanese ladies on television on the on the closed monitor there they were singing something in japanese and he got so tickled about look at that look at that look at that you know just he was just so he was laughing more than i'd ever seen him laugh and you know we sat there we talked i did my little interview he took his boots off put his feet up on the coffee table he eventually fell asleep and i just kind of slipped out but it was one of those I, I equate it to this if you were a guitar player and you had a chance to play guitars with elvis and elvis just says hey would you like to just come play guitars I'm, i have nothing to do let's go play guitars it was the same thing for me and i will never ever forget that experience and you know and then later in the weekend you know he came up to me and he said junior stole my tires junior stole my tires after the race he said you know that's what happened why he didn't win the race is because junior had somehow gone over and got his tires and put them on his car that's dale jr you mean right yeah dale jr okay and uh he's like junior got my tires i couldn't win you know he was just a different person and i'm telling you man that was the greatest experience that happened it made going the 14-hour flight over and the 14-hour flight back worth every second because it was so much fun to hang out with him and he was so different sometimes if he could just relax and in no disrespect to to the fans because he loved the fans and i mean that sincerely but there was just a time for him to sort of step out of his element and just have some fun and and it was a good weekend for him it definitely sounds like it i'm curious if dale earnhardt tried sushi you know i don't know that for sure but (laughs) i would be willing to probably bet you that's a no answer yeah but it'd be uh, interesting. It, seeing Dale Earnhardt try sushi would be uh, that would be an all-time uh, culture clash to me. Yeah, but I, I think so. I'm sure somebody offered it to him. So, and and you speaking of this, I'm assuming this was '98 because in '98 they ran at Motegi and Dale Jr. That was the year Dale Jr. raced over there with Dale um, on the oval. Right. And uh, a good friend of mine, Lenny Batiki, worked on Childress uh, on Childress's team then for Mike Skinner in the Lowe's car, which won that race. Because mm-hmm. uh, you know Dale Jr. and and, and Dale Sr. Uh, they were fighting for the lead for quite a bit in this race. They were both front runners. Neither one of them wound up winning. It was the first time Dale Jr. ever raced against his dad in a Cup Series car. It's the first time he ever raced in a Cup Series car. In this exhibition race, he's in the number one Coca Cola car. Dale's in the number three Coca Cola car. And, you know, Dale Jr. really acquitted himself very well in that race. He did a phenomenal job, whether it was stealing his dad's tires or not. You know, I think he maybe was probably a little bit hesitant to give Dale Jr. all the credit because Dale Jr. beat his dad in that race. He did finish Mm -hmm. higher. Mike Skinner won that race. So what I remember of that race is what Lenny told me. Uh, that Skinner's on the radio toward the end of this race. He's got the fastest car. He hasn't won a race all year. He's run really well. Um, He wants to beat Dale. He wants to beat Dale Jr. He really wants to beat Jeff Gordon, who nobody could beat that year. I swear I feel like Jeff Gordon won a 1,000 races in 1998. He did not win at Japan. Uh, Mike Skinner is leading the race in the last couple laps. And uh, Lenny told me, he was like, Skinner was yelling on the radio, oh, I can't get down in turn one. I can't get down in turn three. This car's so tight. This car's so tight. I can't drive it. And Larry McReynolds was his crew chief. And so Larry Max, like, you know, you got what you got, buddy. We put up the pit box already. You're just going to have to hold on to it. And so he's kind of coaxing him 
to win this race as Jeff Gordon is, you know, charging, coming like a, a, a bat out of, you know what. And, mm-hmm. you know, they, they, they come across finish line. Skinner barely holds him off. I think Dale Jr. was sixth. Uh, Dale was pretty close right after that. Gordon finishes second right on Skinner's bumper. And Skinner yells on the radio. And they caught this on national TV. So I don't know if you heard it when you guys were over there. But the, on national TV, Skinner cues his mic up to Larry Mack and he's like yeah we beat that little SOB um <laughs> so if he didn't abbreviate it and uh, Buddy Baker you know hears that he's like oh boy and uh you know yeah. him and Ken Squire calling the race they got a kick out of that it was a big win for Mike Skinner probably Mike Skinner's biggest win in NASCAR honestly I mean it was uh the only time they ran on Motegi's oval in the cup series right. and it was a big win that was very impressive he didn't end up winning a points race in the cup series but you know to, to beat the talent that was over there which was most of the the cups you know most of the cup series best drivers was really impressive and then you know the thing i remember from that it was just listening to uh lenny tell me about mike skinner yelling on the radio and saying he couldn't do it and he didn't know how he's gonna hold gordon off and mike skinner was a very expressive driver on the radio i think dale was quieter um in some cases than skinner was but maybe it was just nerves but mike skinner won that race obviously very special day for him and i'm very glad to hear ben i didn't know that that dale had such an awesome experience then um i never got to meet dale like i said earlier but um in talking with all the people who uh have, have known dale you know sam bass told me one of the really neatest stories and one of the coolest things i've ever seen was about uh four years ago sam showed me out his personal collection he's like i got one autograph that you've never seen before and i was like all right what do you got and it was uh he's like i've got dale earnhardt's full signature Mm. So he had, uh, he did some work. He did a lot of work for Dale for years. They were very close friends, as you know. He painted Dale's paint schemes. So Dale's special paint schemes were all Sam Bass. But Sam still had this receipt from a project he had done for Dale. And it had his whole signature on it. He wrote like R and then like a little scriggle and then Dale Earnhardt. So it was so weird to see like Dale Earnhardt's full signature was kind of strange, but Mm. yeah, I mean, just, uh, you know, a a colossal figure in the sport. And I think everybody who, whether they only saw him on television or they only read about him, if they saw him race, like I did, if they interacted with him up front, like you did, Dale Earnhardt left a bigger impact on the history of NASCAR. In my opinion, than any other driver because not only did he influence the sport by growing it so much and ushering in that era of national entertainment passing the baton on to jeff gordon in that regard but he brought so many fans into the sport for being the you know coming up you know the 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 kind of a, a rough um youth lost his dad early on had to you know fight and scrap and claw just to get an opportunity turn it into a golden opportunity and, and, and an illustrious career but also all the things he did for so many other drivers i talked to ernie irvin recently you know he sponsored irvin's first cup race he's like i'm not going to give you any money but i'm going to give you i'm going to give you notoriety and that's going to help get you going and he was right because ernie irvin drove a dale earnhardt chevrolet sponsored car to a top 10 finish at charlotte in 1987 that springboarded him to a cup series career winning more than a dozen races and very nearly winning a championship uh but then ken kenny schrader he got schrader he played 
played an, an important role in getting Schrader started, certainly getting Steve Park started with the Dale Earnhardt Incorporated team when it went full-time in 98, and then uh, springboarding Dale Jr.'s career into instant stardom when he began it in 2000. So Dale Earnhardt, in my opinion, Ben, and I'm sure you'd agree, I, I just think that when I look at all the people who had the biggest impacts on NASCAR – Bill France and Bill France Jr. are way up there for their influence over the sport. Richard Petty kind of got it, made it relevant. Jeff Gordon and Dale Jr., Jimmy Johnson, Tony Stewart, those guys helped make it global. But Dale Earnhardt put it on the map, I think, more than anybody else. Yeah, I agree with you there. And I think part of it was that it was very simple. He could, you know, he resonated with, with the fans because they were just like him. He didn't come in with a, a 10, 10 or $20 million, you know, racing budget. He didn't come in with a motor home or a jet. He came in pretty much with two, two quarters in his pocket, hoping to make enough money to buy dinner and to maybe get, I remember there was a story. He went to Daytona in 75 and he didn't have the money to buy oil to put in his transporter and so he went to union or somebody and got a couple of cases of oil because he didn't have it and he was he knew he needed a, at least a quarter every 100 miles or ever, ever maybe even 50 miles and that's the kind of thing that the fans could relate to is like hey you know what i'm i worked on my car last weekend and i had a problem with the you know oil pan on my car and so did dale Earnhardt, one of those things and so yeah but i tell you what there was nobody more surprised in the entire country of Japan than I was when he walked up to me and kicked my chair that day and said, Hey, can I sit down with you? Because I was like, heck yeah. I mean, I was just super honored that he wanted to come have breakfast with me. And what was so cool about it was he didn't really want to talk about racing. He wanted to talk about fishing and hunting and what I did on the farm and growing up in Kannapolis. I had a great interview with Dale one time about, you know, growing up in Kannapolis and a very quick story. I might have shared this with you before. I make I make it very brief, but basically he came in one night about two thirty in the morning. He was supposed to be home at midnight, and he knew. He told me he said if I turn, I had he had a little Nova, and two door Nova. He said if I turned off the engine at a certain place and it didn't bottom out into the driveway, then I could get in, and my mom and dad wouldn't hear me come in. So he does that. He said I'm in the clear. I'm good. Slip through the back door of the kitchen, gets up the steps, and he said he knew the steps the ones that creaked so he had to not hit those and he knew how to step over those and he was about halfway up the steps and then he heard a voice in the dark where you been boy and it was his dad <laughs> so <laughs> you know just a human just a perfect human guy who who everybody could relate to he wasn't on a pedestal at all and so when that car did take a checker flag or when that car did do well they they're like you know what i rode with him today that's my guy yeah and it was all about not having anything because he really did not have anything and when he did going full circle in our conversation here when he did get the ride with Osterlin at bristol and he wins it with a car that's non-sponsored and nobody paid him any attention in the back side of the garage area it's like okay i know he's the kid of ralph earnhardt but maybe this kid's got something and again it took some years for him to get polished and and know what to do on the racetrack and he you know he had for several years he hit everything except the pace car maybe even the pace car because he was just he'd wreck everything but it's either wreck or win but that's that was his style it's like 
I'm going to try, I'm going to win, but it might, only thing I might bring back is the steering wheel, but I'm going to give you everything I have. And so we had to, <laughs> he, did. he had to channel that. He had to channel that aggression and that talent into someone who could learn how to drive a race car for 500 miles. You know, that's why David Pearson was so good, especially at Darlington. He realized early in his career, who, by the way, won his first race at Charlotte in 1961 in a number three Ray Fox uh, crew chief car and uh, but he he learned that early in the game if you're going to win a, a 600 mile race you got to make it all 600 miles and that's what's so good about Pearson he'd lay back and you can't really do that now but he'd lay back until the last 50 or 75 laps and then suddenly he'd be up there every time well Earnhardt learned from that he finally got it if the light bulb finally came on and said Wow, I got to be at the end of this thing to win, and that's when he started calming down and and being able to be strategic about driving the number three car, and that's why he won so many races. But just in a, a phenomenal person, man in black, the intimidator, all that. But off away from all that, he was just as good a guy, very down to earth, and very easy to talk to, and I just loved him. He was he was a good friend. He was uh, he was larger than life to a lot of people. Um, and speaking of one of the tracks that Dale won at, to your point about Dale kind of crashing early in his career, I read a quote one time from Daryl Walter that said early in Earnhardt's career, he's like, "With every lap with Earnhardt, every lap is a controlled crash." Uh, so 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 you know maybe Daryl was onto something, maybe he wasn't, but certainly Dale you know, by the end of his career had, uh, had, had turned it on to a level of performance, which we, the likes of which we may never see again in terms of what he could do inside of a race car. Um, speaking of Dale Earnhardt, Daryl Waltrip and David Pearson, the track of the week in the third episode of a lifetime in NASCAR is a place where all three of these guys have won. Unfortunately, it's not on the cup schedule this year, but it is in a market where they are going back, and that is Nashville Fairgrounds Speedway in Music City, Nashville, Tennessee. Uh, a bunch of historic races at uh, at that little bull ring. It's where Daryl Waltrip cut his teeth early in his career, and you know maybe there were reasons that they didn't uh, continue after the '84 season. They were initially on the schedule for 1985. They've run numerous uh, Xfinity Series races. Since then, but it's been quite a long time since the, since even that division competed there. Now it's primarily for late model racing. But to look at the the winners, the last four seasons there, they had two race dates, and the winners were Daryl Waltrip, Daryl Waltrip, Daryl Waltrip, Daryl Waltrip, Dale Earnhardt, Daryl Waltrip, and Jeff Bodine. <laughs> so it was basically like like we had said about Junior Johnson and North Wilkesboro being the, the free space on the bingo board for Junior Johnson for wins. That's the way Fairgrounds Speedway Nashville was for Daryl Waltrip in the 1970s and particularly the early to mid-80s. But, you know, to me, Ben, this place is really special. I'd never visited this track until I was uh, 27, I think, and I went and visited it in Nashville the first time I was ever in the city. They weren't racing, so just, you know, toured it. And when I say toured it, I mean the back gate was open, so just kind of walked in and took pictures and then left. Uh, but I have seen an ARCA race there in 2016 with uh, a few of my fraternity brothers. Um, 
And it, it was such a neat experience because Nashville gives you that old school down home vibe. I mean, it is on a fairgrounds. The fairgrounds is right beside the racetrack. It's not just called that, you know, to call it that. It really is on a fairgrounds, but it has such a such a charm about it. This racetrack does, and it was so cool to see cars competing there. It was at the warmest, it was 35 degrees. It was positively freezing, even though it was in April of 2016. But it was a ton of fun. Uh, I think the most memorable things for me, Jeff Bodine, who won the last cup race there in 84, he was the grand marshal for the race. But I'm always somebody, a proponent. I like to mix in with the crowd. And we sat in the grandstands. Like, you know, I didn't want to, I wasn't going to cover this race. You know, I wanted to, I wanted to experience Nashville Fairgrounds Speedway. And so, you know, me and my fraternity brothers, we're going to go get some food uh, during a, a caution period in the ARCA race. And there was a guy in front of us in a uh, faded Dale Earnhardt jacket. It was, those, you know, those big leather jackets they sold in the 1990s. Mm-hmm. So it was one of those. And by that point, it was more than 15 years old. He's in this faded Dale Earnhardt jacket. Dude's in, um, you know, tattered blue jeans. And they're we're in line at the concession stand and he just looks at his buddies like, Oh, I think I'm going to have to get me some yard bird. Um, <laughs> which is a phrase I had never heard in my life. And like, I looked at one of my fraternity brothers who, you know, he, he grew up in Winston Salem, but he didn't really grow up a NASCAR fan. He likes it now, but you know, I looked at him and I mean, <laughs> he could barely understand what the guy said. And I, you know, it took me a second too. Um, but you know, that was the most memorable thing from from being there is just interacting with the people. You know, I think the yeah. people are what make racing as as fun as and as impactful an experience as the racers and the drivers and the race themselves. Um, so for me, hearing that guy, you know, and then kind of having to translate that in my head to, all right, well, he's getting chicken. And <laughs> what it was was they were selling chicken on a stick. Yeah. You know, I mean, because you're at the fair, basically. Yeah, there's a race going on, but you're still kind of at the fair. So that's what I got to. I had to get it. I mean, you know, when in Rome, right? So Yeah, sure. Absolutely. I mean, I mean you got to experience it for sure. Yeah. And but. so I got. I, I was, you know, sitting there in the grandstands eating chicken on a stick watching an ARCA race, you know, and I don't know how many people have had the pleasure of experiencing that. I know, that. I was going to say, what could be better than it, that? Yeah, really? oh, it was great. At freezing, you know, I had like this light jacket on. I was wearing an old Dale Earnhardt Wrangler hat, I think, as mm-hmm. it were. But, uh, yeah, so... I got some yard bird that day too. And when I see the name Nashville Fairgrounds Speedway, I think of the history that raced there, the the the, the fantastic moments, Daryl Waltrip's dominance. Um, mm-hmm. and I think of that guy who was gonna get him some yard bird and I assume he did. And then it <laughs> yeah. reminds me of that chicken well, on a stick and man, that's the craziest thing I've ever eaten at a racetrack. Yeah, and you know, I guess some memories for me about Nashville is, well, let's see, I I am a happy 60-year-old man this year. I turned 60 this year, but when I was 15, it was the year 1975 when Darrell Waltrip won his first cup race there. And to give you a little background about what he was driving, he was driving his own number 17 Terminal Transport Chevrolet on a very, very low budget. I think the number was like 25000 he wasn't getting hardly any money, but the terminal transport sponsorship was actually came from a gentleman by the name of Frank Rader. Frank Rader was his father-in-law. He was the president 
of Texas Gas, and and Terminal Transport was a subsidiary of Texas Gas, and of course that was Stevie Walter's father, was Frank Rader. So they put Terminal Transport on the car. He had, again, another name, a name that's come up once already tonight, uh, Jake Elder, who was, this is a three or four years before the Dale Earnhardt victory at Bristol. And so he's turning wrenches on the car. And But the, the key to the whole win for Daryl that year was the fact that he had raced at Nashville so many times. You see, he knew all the, the tricks and all the cracks in the track and all these things. And so he ends up winning the race. But I just remember listening to that race on the radio as a 15-year-old thinking, wow, he just beat the very best in the business in a car that he owned and had sponsorship from his father-in-law. And he has set the world on fire because he's beat all these great champions. And, of course, that was the springboard to getting into with Diegard Racing yep. uh, over the, ne- the next year. And and then, you know, winning a bunch of races for, for Diegard and came close to winning a championship in 79 and lost it to Richard Petty by only two points uh, after dominating the season. That's, that's another story we'll be getting into, I guess, and uh, later on. But Daryl just, he, he knew the track. He was there in Nashville, even though he lived in Franklin and still does. But, you know, Nashville Fairgrounds was very much like Richmond Fairgrounds, and basically all it was is that you had an asphalt racetrack with a ribbon of steel guardrail around it, and that's pretty much it. And if you're talking about the original Richmond race track yeah. and, the, and the original uh, Nashville track. Mm-hmm. And, yeah, but you're right. There's such an incredible charm about racing at a track like that because it's grassroots. It's down down and dirty on the track as far as the drivers go i mean there's no frills no spills it's just a great place to race and you know bowman gray stadium in winston-salem is a lot that way that's why they pack the place in the summer when of course when we're not doing the covid 19 which i hope we're not going to do a lot more of and they pack the place and that's i'm sure that's the way it was with nashville but very quickly a couple of things that come to mind 1974 i remember that kale yarborough and bobby allison went to victory lane there and there are folks photos of Bobby and Kale having a discussion in Victory Lane, and I believe it ended up that Kale ended up winning the race, but that Bobby was certain he won it. And and there's another time, of course, back in history where Darrell Waltrip and Neil Bonnet both drove for Junior Johnson in the number 11 and 12 Budweiser cards, and they both ended up going to Victory Lane, and I believe the win went to Neil Bonnet that time. So there's there's been some, some colorful conversations, let's put it that way, in Victory Lane. And those yeah. are the eras of yeah. uh, of scoring snafus too, right? So I mean, this was when you had the drivers' wives and girlfriends would would do the lap chart for them, and if a guy felt like he won the race, he he would just protest. Like now, this isn't an issue because they hit. There's so much electronic scoring that mm-hmm. you know even the fan sitting on his couch instantly knows where the car is and how many laps is completed. Well, then. You scored races using a pencil and a pad, and one person did. So you had to trust that they got it right. And if a guy behind the wheel thought, I don't think he ran all those laps, you know, then there would be these discussions. And yeah. it is wild to think that it was teammates. Speaking of Daryl and all the success he had at Nashville, which, as you made a very great point of it, springboarding his career, he won his first race by more than two laps. So, I mean, it was. 
Cale Yarborough led the most laps in that race and then had an engine failure, but Daryl won that race over Benny Parsons by more than two laps. And one of the coolest things, when I like to, when I look up old race results, I started doing this, and the names in the field of the 1975 Music City USA 420, that was the name of the race. Some of the names, man, like you got very modern names in the cup series now there were no austins in 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 the cup series then there were no alex's there were mm-hmm. no trevors there was just a, as a different era uh, with guys named cuckoo cecil alton jd frank rick kale elmo earl bill jabe baxter paul dean ed richard joey and buddy i mean all all kinds of names Uh, and you know that i think i i'm always amused i I looked up the the arca point standings from the 80s a few months ago versus now and the names are, are completely different as you know as as everything has changed certainly names change as well but there were some very notable ones in in that race none more so than cuckoo marlin another tennessee guy like daryl who who finished third in that race to uh, to dw and to benny parsons but yeah a ton of fun memories at nashville mm-hmm. um i feel very privileged to have one of my own because they they don't I don't think there's enough racing there. I'd love to see it back on the cup schedule, but just the fact that NASCAR is going back to the Nashville market this year, I think is phenomenal. Nashville really as a city, I feel like is it's been growing for years. It's a very vibrant place. I'm not a huge country music guy, but you just get into that culture when you're there and you become a part of it and it becomes a part of you. But from the sporting scene, you know, Nashville's just added a major league soccer franchise. They have an NHL team. They have the Tennessee Titans in the NFL. And now they're really getting back into the racing scene nationally by having the the NASCAR Cup Series racing at Nashville Super Speedway, which is down the road a little bit from Nashville Fairgrounds and is much, much newer and is a larger racetrack. They'll be racing there. And then also IndyCar is racing uh, in Nashville next year as well. So a lot of great things coming for the city of Nashville, which is one of my favorite cities that I have ever visited and certainly uh, would love to see them with a cup date at the fairgrounds sometime in the future. So speaking of all these, these moments of, of tracks and of drivers that we've talked about, Ben, um, do you have any memorable moments, um, from the crew chiefs and all the personalities that you've encountered throughout history? Oh boy. Well, yeah, I mean, there's some, there's, there's some great, great crew chiefs out there. And I, the first one, I guess it comes to mind is, uh, yeah, a good friend of mine, Dale Inman, who helped Richard Petty to, I think it was 197 of 200 victories. But yeah, just he's someone that I've really gotten to know really well over the years. And of course, uh, Leonard Wood, another one that just I think the world of, and just phenomenal crew chiefs in an era where you didn't have a lot of the technology that you do now they had to run a lot of run what you brung if you know what i'm saying there and and measuring uh the front end alignments with string and and all the tricks that and jake elder too all the tricks that they would come up with that were legal but they would just come up with just their uh, what i call horse sense a pen and a pad and and a string and could could make a race car turn like magic in a in a in a turn and you know i'm, I'm trying as a sitter i'm trying to think of some well here's a good dylan uh, dylan um story kyle petty told me this he said he was so exact with his race cars 
with that mentality of the string and the pan and the pad that he said one of the things he loved to do about on Richard's cars with every screw head on this car had to be they all had to match you know in other words if you had a screw head that was three of them were from for horizontal when one was vertical no you had to go back and and change that screw head and that's when kyle was working as a crew member he said he would drive me crazy about you know what's so what what does it matter that you had four screws and three of them were this way and one's that way he said but you got to do them all the right way because that makes a great winning race car if you turn them all the right way and sure enough i mean that's that's the kind of mentality that that Leonard Wood, Dale Inman, Doug Rickert, who was Dale Earnhardt's first yeah. crew chief. Those guys were just so good at making something out of nothing and making, in many cases, a fifth place or 10th place car, a winning car. There were, there's phenomenal. There's so many, Waddell Wilson, there were so many great crew chiefs of the 60s, 70s. Just the list goes on and on, but that's the ones that come to mind. They're just they're, and they're still there. Leonard is still with the 21 team. He's there. He's not a crew chief any longer, but he's a consultant. Same thing with Dale Inman. And that's all they've ever known. And I asked them both, what would you do if you retired? He said, I, I could never, both of them said, I could never retire. What would I do? I mean, I, and Richard has said the same thing. What would I do if I was just to retire? I'd sit home and go crazy, and I would end up being back at the racetrack. So don't look for any of those three and, and many other veterans. They'll live their lives going to racetracks and all three gentlemen when i talk about richard petty leonard wood dylan when you couldn't find three nicer guys three straight up guys they're the best yeah absolutely and i think there are there's a myriad of guys who have 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 turned wrenches and been tremendous crew chiefs in a more recent time Jeff Hammond, who worked with Daryl Waltrip for a long time, and later with Kurt Busch. Uh, Larry McReynolds was <laughs> an absolute legend. Certainly, you can't have any conversation about great crew chiefs and not include Chad Knauss, who has accomplished so much. It's going to be so weird for me, Ben, to know that Chad's not on a box next year uh, because he, he's moved into a, a more management competition role at Hendrick Motorsports. He won't be a crew chief in 2021. It's so it's going to be so weird to me because when I think of a great crew chief, I think of Dale Inman and I think of Chad Knauss because they come from two completely different eras, but they have that same commitment to perfection and commitment to excellence. And that's something that really set Chad apart and made him such a great pairing with Jimmy Johnson was, yeah, you had in 2002 when these guys first started working together because Jimmy's crew chief for his partial schedule in 01 was Ken Howes of uh, Hendrick Management. 2002, you pair this unproven crew chief who was working for Stacy Compton's Kodiak Dodge, this guy from Illinois named Chad, with this guy from California named Jimmy, who used to sleep on his his residence for a little while was Ron Hornaday's couch and mm-hmm. driving for Herzog Motorsports. Neither one of them had a sterling resume for the opportunity that they had been presented with. And they absolutely knocked it dead for years. And Jimmy deserves so much credit for what those for what that pair accomplished in the number 48 car but chad is right there with jimmy in terms of greatness for his position how he rose above in an era of engineering where you had to not just be so precise like dale inman you had to outsmart guys because now there's so many other factors that go into making a car fast in terms of 
wind tunnel testing, you know, aero work. Uh, there's so much engineering. It's such an engineering driven sport now. And every time I talk to a crew chief who is a current one, a recent one like Steve Latart or a guy who last called a race on the pit box 20 years ago, like Larry Mack, they all talk about how this sport's changed so much from an engineering perspective. It puts even more pressure on every crew chief. He's got to be perfect on his pit calls. He's got to, if you need two tires, you got to know when to make that call for two tires as opposed to four. You've got to balance track position with your car's handling for the future. There's so many things that go into being a great crew chief, and there's so much stress in that job. I don't understand how Chad did it for so long at such a high level, but to me, when I think of the greatest crew chiefs, Chad Knauss and Dale Inman are are guys that kind of come to the forefront. And we could yeah. talk all day about these great crew chiefs, um, but those are those are two that really stand out to me, Ben. And and Chad's mm-hmm. commitment to 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 his work, I think, uh, you know. And Jimmy said this in the past too. He that was his life. That number forty eight low Chevrolet for more than a decade. That was Chad's wife. That was Chad's children. That was Chad's family. That was, he was putting everything he had into making sure that car ran great. That car won a bunch of races. And my gosh, they were repaid with so many victories and so many championships. So it's going to be a lot of fun to see uh, who takes that mantle from Chad Knauss and, and, and is the next great legendary all-time crew chief. Could it be Rodney Childers with Kevin Harvick? They won nine races last year. There's a lot of different guys, I think, who could step into that role. And it's going to be very exciting to see who can do it uh, as we get started on 2021. Right. Well, here's a here's a point I want to make that uh, related to Chad and related to every modern-day crew chief. And I guess you could even go back to the, the era of Dale Inman and Leonard Wood for this, too. If you look at an NFL game and you've got two coaches on the sideline, the coach on this side is looking at him vice versa, and they're trying to play this out and figure out strategies and how to get, of course, the most points during this game, four-quarter game. When you're looking at a crew chief in the Cup Series or the Xfinity or Trucks, either one, you're you're battling against 39 other race teams at the same time. So not only are you trying to figure out what your closest competitor is going to do, what about the guy who's second, third, fourth, fifth, eighth, twelfth, fifteenth, whatever the case may be, and you're trying to figure out what their strategy is going to be. So it's got to be nerve-wracking to not only worry about the other race teams, but worry about the complexities of the race itself, your tires, your fuel, the the stages, the where the cautions fall, all these things. And so, yeah, to be a crew chief in this day and time, it is just phenomenally mental. I mean, it's that's all it is, it's just mental. Not only at the racetrack, but away from the racetrack, trying to figure out all these strategies. But, you know, looking at, something one of the reasons i want to point out too one of the reasons dale Earn, um, excuse me dale enman was so good as a crew chief was that this is something kyle petty also pointed out to me recently he said to be a great crew chief you have to be a leader but you also got to be a listener and and dale was so good at listening to other people's ideas about what to do to make the car faster as opposed to putting his ego out there because he'd say okay well let's try that and sometimes it would be better than what he had in mind other times it wouldn't but he was good at listening to other people's suggestions a team player and that's what you got to be that's why he's the only eight-time cup series 
championship crew chief. He's the only one that's pulled off eight. He did seven with Richard Petty, and then he did one with Terry Labonte uh, in 1984. So that it takes all these things. But I, I've, I've thought to myself mentally, that's got to be the hardest job on earth is to figure out what to do, when to do, how to do against 39 other race teams. It's got to be mind-blowing. So before we wrap up, I, I'm you bringing that up makes me curious your opinion of this. Chad's style, Chad Canals' style as a crew chief, very different from what Dale Inman did. Chad, mm-hmm. I think, Chad liked to run the race team, and I think he more than deserved that power because he proved time and time again how great he was with it. But if you had to say, do you think – if you put Richard Petty with Chad Knauss and you put Jimmy Johnson with Dale Inman, do you think either of those – all other things aside the same, do you think that either of those pairings could work? I don't I don't think they could, and, and I'll tell you why I say that. I have to go back to eras. Let's look back at Richard Petty's era, and I'm not taking anything away from any other race team, okay? But Richard Petty and Dale Inman were so good at an era when – you only had five, six, seven race cars that every week could win. Yeah. Okay. So, I mean, there there might be one or two squeakers that would come up and win a race, but generally every week you had maybe five, six, seven cars. Today, you've got 40 cars that potentially could win a race. And we go back to Chris Buescher, we, we talked about in 2016 winning at Pocono. He didn't get there by accident. He was on the racetrack. He was a competitive car that day. And it, that competitive and that strength will go all the way through 40 cars. So I don't think it would work because I think you're looking at two different eras where they would complement one another, don't get me wrong, but I think I think the think, and I've heard Bill Elliott talk about this too. He's like, I don't want to tell Chase Elliott how to drive a race car because his race car, my race car was just totally different in two different eras of racing. I don't know that I could relate to him and he can't relate to me. So I will, all I would do is, is mess him up to where he would get confused. I need to leave him alone and let him do his own thing. So I think eras would, would probably stop that. I think it'd be very respectable among them. They both driver and crew chief have, would have a lot to bring to the table, but the, the eras in time, I think would be the difference. And I take nothing away from Dale Inman and Richard Petty. And I take nothing away from Jimmy Johnson and Chad. It's just different competitive eras of our sport. I do agree. And I think it would have been really interesting to hear, to hear Chad, and the king i think those are two as, <laughs> as as democratic a process as you claim it was for dale lindman running his race team richard petty and chad canals to me are type a racers mm-hmm. and that what i think is probably what's best because i'm better than everybody else so that would have been really interesting to see because I I, th- I see Jimmy and I see Dale Inman as the as you know that they are driven by intelligence and that they're the there's the cerebral type and so is Chad and the King don't get me wrong but I think you could pair those personalities and they'd be pretty similar more so than if you if you put you know most others with them but i do agree it would be pretty wild and i i think the radio conversations of you know late 2000s chad canals and early 70s richard petty would have been pretty funny just yeah, like I, uh, dale inman and jimmy johnson yeah i think so and one final 
one final point here, Aaron, is this. Thinking about a conversation between Dale Inman and to Richard and, and Chad to Jimmy, here's what Dale Inman would say. Is it how are you turning in the turn in the corner? Oh, it's a little lower than it was last lap. Okay. With Chad and Jimmy, how are you turning in the corner? Does the circumference of the left tire, you know what I'm <laughs> yeah. saying? I mean, it, it yeah. would be this. Uh, it's more this, technical. It's way more technical now. And so, yeah, it would be kind of funny. I could hear the king saying, huh, what'd you say? <laughs> <laughs> I could hear that now. Yeah. Because it was like, uh, I don't know, man. It's just the wheels are turning and they're going the right direction and I'm going lower. So, you know, that's the way <laughs> That's the way that would, I think that would work out. So, yeah, it'd be, it'd be a difference for sure. Well said. It would uh, it would be very interesting. And, you know, there's a lot of combinations you could think of. I think the most oil and water one would be Chad Canals and Dale Earnhardt. I think you, oh, you, yeah. you eventually <laughs> would just run into two people that just yeah. wouldn't fit. I think when you got that level of greatness, people would think maybe it was a dream team. But... I don't think that one would work. I do think there's a possibility that if, if all other things aside were, were similar, I think Jimmy Johnson and Dale Emmon could win a lot of races and a lot of championships together, but we'll never know. We could always, uh, you know, we, we could sit here and bench race uh, forever. And uh, I, I do think that if I had to put two, one from the past and one from the, well, I guess he's the past now, too, in terms of Jimmy Johnson's case, but one of the more recent presents with the guy from the past, I think that'd be a very successful comparison. But, you know, it, it's it's something that I think a lot of people, if you thought about it, could could probably pair some people together that would be very interesting. Dale Inman and, and David Pearson. I could see Dale Inman and Matt Kenseth working really well together. Um, Chad Knauss and Kurt Busch, uh, probably less so. <laughs> but you know, I don't see that. Yeah. Yeah. So, so you know, I mean, this is it's a it's a constant thing. I think that we we could think of a bunch of folks um, and and do that for a long time. But um, that said, the checkered flag is out on episode three of a lifetime in NASCAR. As I said earlier. Ben, we could probably spend a lifetime talking about our driver of the week, that being Dale Earnhardt. Um, But also talk and expound plenty more. We will on Dale Earnhardt as well as Jimmy Johnson, Chad Knauss, Richard Petty, Dale Inman, Rusty Wallace, Ernie Irvin, Louis Allen Jr., Jimmy Spencer, Lake Speed, whoever you can think of. We're going to talk about him because I've got a really interesting fact about Louis Allen Jr. that we'll discuss in the next episode and something that I don't think will ever happen again that Louis Allen Jr. accomplished in 1994. So, Until then, thanks for listening to Episode 3 of A Lifetime in NASCAR. For Ben White, I'm Aaron Burns. We'll be back very soon with episode number four we'll probably be back in touch listening to uh, listening to you i guys i should say i'll be listening to ben ben will be listening to me we'll be talking to you guys we'll be back with episode four quicker than dale and hart could lap martinsville so in the meantime thanks for listening so long for now
Eric Estep here. This episode is brought to you by Forney Industries. Get it done with green. Forney offers a full line of welding and plasma cutting machines, metalworking accessories, and more. For do-it-yourselfers all the way to professional metalworkers, Forney has everything you need for your next project. Shop Forney's top-of-the-line products at forneyind.com. That's Forney, F-O-R-N-E-Y, ind, I-N-D.com, or at an authorized Forney dealer near you.